Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 3, as Mike just read, we will be in verses 4 through 6. And as you uh, turn there, I want to tell you about uh, two types of people that exist in the world. And uh, so you find yourself in one of these two categories. Uh, You have those who really love to sleep, and then you have those who do not. My daughter, Larkin, I love her to death, but she is in the not category. Her goal each and every night is to stay up as late as she possibly can, and her goal each and every morning is to get up as early as she possibly can. There is too much to do in the world for her to be in bed. And uh, and so even after we put her to bed, we will look on the monitor an hour later and her eyes are wide open like a deer on a trail camera or something like that. And, uh, And so she just does not ever sleep. She doesn't like to sleep. And, uh, and so up until a couple of months ago, whenever she couldn't sleep, which is all the time, then eventually she would get tired of just waiting in her room with her eyes wide open. And so she would eventually call out for Casey or myself to come in there. And uh, she would want us to scratch her back or she would want us to lay with her or tell her a story or sing her a song uh, or something like that. But then a couple of months ago, she discovered She has the gift of movement, and so she can just get out of bed on her own. And so she'll get out of bed, and she'll just play there in her room, or she's uh, often, she'll just come out of the room, which is super scary, because all of a sudden, there's just a kid in the room, kind of just uh, appearing out of nowhere. And so a couple of uh, weeks ago, I go in there, and I tuck her in, and I give her a kiss, uh, and we pray together, and then I say, Larkin, you can't come out. And she says, but what if it's an emergency? And I got to confess, I had no idea how to answer that question. On one hand, I know if I give her permission, she's going to take that and use that as a loophole and everything's going to be an emergency. On the other hand, if I tell her, don't come out even if there's an emergency, I don't want her to stay in there if, uh, if she has to go to the bathroom or something like that. I don't want her thinking, I know that my dad told me to not come out, even if it's an emergency, so even though my curtains are on fire, I'm just going to wait it out. So I just told her, I said, if it's truly, really an emergency, then you can come out, and I figured, we'll just figure it out as we go. And uh, and so I thought, you know, what's the danger? If she misapplies this, I just have to put her back in bed. Otherwise, she goes to the bathroom, she catches on fire, something like that. So worst case scenario is a little different in each case. And so I just told her, uh, if it's an emergency, you can come out. And so a few days later, I am, uh, I'm sitting in my living room and I hear her door open really quietly, which is really strange because my daughter doesn't do anything quietly. And so I hear her door open quietly and so I stand up and I go and I peek around the corner and I see the door open and my daughter is bouncing out of the room on this inflatable llama that she has. And she looks at me and she makes eye contact and she seems scared and surprised for a second. And then she says, it was an emergency. And I thought, now I've got to close that door of miscommunication. I don't know what I'm going to say uh, to her. But this little struggle to communicate with my daughter reminds me of the underlying difficulty of the text that we're looking at this morning. 
You see, I have two dangers that I'm trying to avoid as I talk to my daughter about when it is and is not appropriate for her to come out of the room. There are two dangers that I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to avoid the danger of her just coming out whenever she wants, but I'm also trying to avoid the danger of her actually being endangered by some sort of circumstance that actually would constitute an emergency. Likewise, there are going to be two dangers, at least two dangers, that we need to avoid as we read the text this morning as it relates to the relationship that believers have to sin. On one hand, we have to confess, if we're reading this passage correctly, we have to confess that a Christian's fundamental relationship to sin has changed, such that a believer should be marked by holiness and sanctification, by a love for God and a corresponding hatred to sin. In some sense, sin is foreign. In some sense, it's incompatible with our new identity as sons and daughters. But on the other hand, we also need to avoid the potential misunderstanding of this text and the misapplication of this text that this is promoting the idea of perfectionism. That because you're a believer, because you're born again, because you love and trust Jesus, that therefore you don't sin at all. Those are the two dangers that we need to avoid. Unfortunately, any attempt on my part to stress one of those could, in your heart and in your mind, lead you to conclude that I'm letting go of the other, that I'm neglecting the other. It could lead either to condemnation, to thoughts of condemnation, because you look at your life and you see that there's residual sin, or to complacency. You think, well, you're going to sin anyway, so you might as well be complacent about it. So that's the predicament of our text this morning. I want to, uh, to encourage us just in a time of prayer and then we'll dive in because this is a really difficult passage to work through. Uh, I oftentimes will have you just pray for yourself first, so I'm gonna ask you to do that now as you're coming in with uh, maybe bitterness or resentment, maybe you had a fight in the car, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're just thinking about the Cowboys game or lunch or whatever it might be and so would you just pray for yourself? And then would you pray for those around you as well? The Lord would give us a collective desire to hear his word and to heed it. And then would you pray for me that I would be bold and faithful So Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning as your people and to hear your word. And so I pray that your spirit who indwells us, might help us, might awaken us, might enlighten us to the revelation of your word. We pray these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts, and so we pray with hope and expectation in Jesus' name, amen. We'll start in 1 John 3, 4. We're gonna be in verses four, five, and six this morning. But verse four says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Do you remember back before everyone had Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or something like that, and you couldn't binge watch 15 episodes of your favorite show, whether it's Seinfeld or Cheers or MASH or whatever it might have been, and uh, you couldn't binge watch all of those in one night or over the weekend or something like that, so what would you have to do? You would watch your show and then you'd have to wait a week. If there were reruns or something like that, you might have to wait two weeks or three weeks or the entire summer hiatus in order to pick it up. Uh, again. 
So lots of shows used to start by kind of summarizing what had been happening uh, in the context of that show, uh, and they would say something like, previously on Knight Rider, or whatever your favorite show was, previously on Dallas, whatever it might have been. So I think that's really helpful in sermons as well. We call that, again, context. That's what this is. And so, any, uh, any text that we read isn't intended to be isolated and read only by itself. That's always the struggle when it comes to preaching. Any text of Scripture is that you're going to isolate it from the surrounding context. This isn't intended to be read just within the context of verses 4 through 6. It's intended to be read within the larger context of 1 John and indeed in the larger context of the entire Scripture. So previously in 1 John, we've seen that there was false teaching in the church. There's false teaching, there's false teachers, and so John writes this book with two goals. One, to combat those false teachers and that false teaching, but also to comfort the flock. Those are the two purposes. He wants to confront the false teaching, but he wants to comfort the true flock. So that's what John is doing here. And he writes to give these sort of litmus tests, these, uh, these tests for us to know whether or not we're actually subject to this false teaching or we're actually part of the flock that he is intending to comfort. And so he gives these three litmus tests that we've talked about before, the first one being doctrinal, the second one being ethical or social, uh, I'm sorry, ethical or moral, and the third one being relational or social. In other words, our identity is confirmed by our faith, by our works, and by love. What identity is that? I said our identity is confirmed. What identity is that? It's our identity as sons and daughters of God, as children of God. That's the language we found at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3. And so we find ourselves in the middle of this larger section of 1 John contrasting two different groups, sons of God versus sons of the evil one. And we'll see that crescendo in our text next week in verse 10 it will say this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, what John is saying is sons of the devil act like the devil. They're chips off the old block, while sons of God are being conformed into the image of the Son, the Son of God, who is pure, as we read last week, or sinless, as we read this week. So that's the context of our passage this morning, and I want to begin by comparing and contrasting two terms that we'll encounter in our text, two different terms that you see in the text. You see it there on the screen, the first one being sin and the second one being lawlessness. In some sense, John implies that those are uh, different. He says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also, notice the word also, also practices lawlessness. But in another sense, they are the same. They overlap. He says sin is lawlessness. So in a sense, they're the same. In a sense, they are different. Here's why that's important, because there are multiple Greek words in the context of 1 John that roughly mean sin. In the book of 1 John, there's a number of words. For example, uh, in chapter 1, we already encountered the word adikia, it's translated as wrongdoing or unrighteousness or something like that in, uh, in various places. In our passage today, we see uh, hamartia, which is translated as sin. In fact, the doctrine of sin is called hamartiology, the study of sin. And then we also see anemia. 
That's what's translated here as lawlessness. So again, in some sense, those are all different terms, but in another sense, they overlap because he says hamartia is anemia. Sin is lawlessness. What's he doing here? Why is it uh, that he's going to pains to kind of distinguish these things and then also show how they overlap? Let me give you an illustration and then I'll explain what I think he is doing. So a few years back, I uh, I went on a ride along with a police officer in order to notify a next of kin. And so I was kind of volunteering uh, as a uh, kind of a part-time chaplain uh, for the police department. And so uh, I had to go with an officer to notify a woman that her husband had passed away. And on, in, the, uh, in the ride over there to, uh, to inform the woman, the officer was telling me about some policies and procedures that the department had. And he said one of their policies is that they have to explicitly say, your husband is dead. They're not allowed to say, your husband has deceased. You're not allowed to say that he's passed away. You're not allowed to say anything like that. You have to say your husband is dead. Now, you can say more than that. You should say more than that. You should say, I'm sorry, and all those kinds of things. But you have to explicitly say the word dead. Why is it that you have to explicitly say that? Lest there be any miscommunication whatsoever. Lest in her mind there be something that you haven't quite communicated there's, a, there's a, a TV show where there's a doctor who comes and says, we lost him to the, uh, to, to the next of kin. And uh, so everyone thinks that he's dead. And really, no, he just ran away, right? There's this, there's this potential in these other phrases that you might misunderstand. And that, I think, is what John is doing here. He doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding. He's already used the word sin 10 times in the letter. By the time we get to this particular passage, he's used hamartia. He's used that 10 times already. But what's interesting is that his uses of sin, he has said that we do sin as Christians. He said that anyone who says that they don't sin is a liar. He writes that we have been cleansed of our sin, that we've been forgiven of our sin. So it might be possible for us to read this passage To get to this point in the text, we've read all of these things about how sin is forgiven and how it's cleansed, and we might think, if my sin can be forgiven, then maybe it really isn't that bad. Like the idea of resting in peace doesn't sound that bad. And so John uses this stronger word to awaken us to the horror of sin. He uses this word, anemia, pronounced like anemias, like the restaurant down the road. But whereas Tex-Mex is good and really good, anemia is bad and very bad. Anemia is a is somewhat rare term in the New Testament, but it's much more common in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In fact, it's used more than 200 times in what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word literally just means lawless. That's what it literally means, but the usage in the Old Testament is actually much stronger than that. The idea behind this word isn't just that someone violates God's law, but that one disdains the very idea of a law to which one must submit. Does that make sense, that distinction? It doesn't merely mean that you violate God's law. It means that you have disdain for the law itself. More than that, you have disdain for the very lawgiver. That's what anemia means as it's used in the Old Testament. In fact, it is even used as a nickname for the devil, for Satan, for the evil one. In the New Testament, we find it's a word that's constantly used with reference to false teachers and even used of the Antichrist. He's the son of lawlessness. 
So with that in mind, think back to the context of this passage, which is contrasting sons of God with sons of the devil, sons of the evil one. And you can see how this term comes into play. The term anemia is a reminder that sin in its essence is a rejection of the kingdom of God. It's a rejection of God as king. That's what sin is. It's a rejection of God as king. It's a submission to evil and to the evil one. So I think that John is using this much stronger term here, lest we misunderstand the nature of sin. Yes, sin will be forgiven. Yes, sin will be cleansed if you love and trust Jesus. Absolutely, yes. But lest you think that that means that sin isn't all that bad, he uses the word anemia. Anemia is a much stronger word to correct that misinterpretation. Sin isn't just missing the mark. Sin isn't just trying your hardest and coming up a little short. Sin is actual lawlessness. It is rebellion. It is treason. No matter whether we call it iniquity or transgression or lawlessness or unrighteousness or wrongdoing, sin is no slight, small trivial thing. It's rebellion against the sovereign creator and source of light and love and goodness. If Jesus is king, and he is, then sin is rebellion against the kingdom. Sin is treason. It's a capital offense worthy of eternal condemnation. Again, are you forgiven of sin in Jesus? Yes, Amen. Absolutely. You are forgiven of any and all sin in Jesus. But that does not in any way suggest that sin is somehow somehow not that bad. Instead, what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates just how great, how good, how glorious Christ is. The fact that you're forgiven doesn't in any way minimize sin. It emphasizes the glory and grace and mercy of God, how powerful the blood of Christ really is. Even the most insignificant sin is worthy of eternal condemnation, which means that for you and me, that little sin in your life, whatever it is, you're checking out the secretary at work, you fudging a little number on your expense report, you only uttering a bad word when you stub your toe or drop something or break something, you just looking at one picture occasionally on the internet. The occasional grumbling, the occasional complaining, a little gossip, a little white lie. It's actually not little. There is no such thing as light treason. There's no such thing as small, insignificant rebellion against God and against the king. When we sin, we pledge allegiance to sin and thus to Satan. When we sin, we say that God is not good, he's not loving, he's not sovereign, he's not worthy. Sin is lawlessness, and anyone who makes a practice of sin demonstrates their desire to perfect sin. Well, if sin is lawlessness, if sin is really this bad, if lawlessness really is cosmic treason, then what hope do we have? Let's look at verse five. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this is our hope. We've seen it before throughout 1 John. What is our hope? Our hope is the appearing of Christ. Now that's an interesting phrase. We saw it last week as well. Look at uh, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall uh, be like him because we shall see him as he is. But notice something that's interesting. In last week's text, the appearing of Christ is this future reality. 
something we are waiting for, something that hasn't happened yet. When he appears is a future sort of reality, but here in verse 5 in our text this morning, John speaks of the appearing of Christ as being something in the past, something that's already accomplished. He has already appeared. You see here this distinction between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. The word advent means coming. That's what we're uh, about to celebrate, the advent season, the coming of Christ leading up to the incarnation. That's the first advent, the first coming of Christ. He has already come. He's already appeared in His incarnation. That's the first advent. And then He's going to come again in glory when He returns. That's the second advent. But why why did He come the first time? That's what the text is talking about here. It gives us this purpose statement. Why did Christ appear as verse 5 says? Why was Christ incarnated? Why was Christ crucified? Why was Christ resurrected? There are various ways that you could answer that. Answering that question is kind of like looking at a diamond and holding it up uh, to the light and you see all the different beautiful complementary colors. Not contradictory colors, but complementary colors. They work together to show forth the beauty of the stone. Likewise with this question, if someone were to ask you, why did Christ come? There are dozens upon dozens of ways that you can answer that question. The more answers to that question that you find in Scripture, the more glorious you actually perceive Christ's work to actually be. There are literally dozens of reasons that Scripture gives, each providing this complementary perspective, enhancing our appreciation of the, uh, the glory of Christ's work. For example, Scripture says that He came to absorb and satisfy the wrath of God. He came to please His Father. He came to manifest God's love and grace, to demonstrate the glory of God, to fulfill the law so that we don't have to bear that burden, to be a ransom and provide for forgiveness. Next week, we'll read that He came to destroy the works of the devil, but in today's text, He appeared to take away Sins. Now, what's really interesting here is that he uses this phrase, takes away sin. We might think that all he means by that is forgiveness. Christ came in order to forgive sin, but notice that's not actually what the text says. It says that he came to take away sin. If all he meant by this phrase is just forgive, he most likely would have used the most common word for forgive. In fact, he's already, using, uh, he's already used that particular word in chapter 1. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's really interesting that in chapter 3, he doesn't use the word forgive. Instead, it says that he came to take away sin. So I think this text certainly means that he forgives our sin, but I think he means something more than forgiveness. You see, forgiveness has to do with what we call justification, how you are declared righteous uh, on, uh, on account of Christ's righteousness. That's what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is about justification. I think that John uses this particular phrase and not forgiveness because he also wants to point, uh, in addition to justification, to the reality of sanctification, that Jesus doesn't merely remove the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin and eventually the presence of sin from our lives. This is why he came. He came to take away our sins, not merely to forgive us, yes and amen to forgiveness, but also to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to, uh, to remove the power and presence of sin, which is sanctification. And that's only possible, notice what he says next, because he himself is sinless. As John writes, in him there is no 
sin, which is roughly equivalent to what we read last week where it says that Jesus is pure. And this recognition, the sinlessness of Christ, the purity of Christ is what actually makes this whole passage work. It's the fuel to drive both the justification and the sanctification. You see, Christ takes away sin because in him there is no sin. That's the meaning of this passage. Christ takes away your sin because in him there is no sin. If there was sin in him, he could not take away your sin. Anybody remember paper towel commercials? You remember uh, uh, Brawny? What was their slogan? They were the quicker, thicker, picker-upper, right? And, uh, and then you also had, I'm sorry, that was, uh, that was Bounty, wasn't it? And then you had Brawny, which was the mustached, uh, flannel-wearing lumberjack guy. And in the uh, paper towel commercials that you would have, you would always have this huge mess, and somebody would come over with one single sheet of, uh, of paper towel, and with one single swipe, they would clean up the entire mess, right? They wouldn't even fold it like a sane person, right? They would just go and get it all over their hand as well. Now, in reality, what would happen if you tried that, right? While you're cleaning up that one mess, which actually takes an entire roll to clean up, your kid's already made another mess, right? You're just perpetually, especially if you're a mom, you're perpetually just cleaning up messes. That's basically all you're doing. You're buying uh, rolls of, uh, of paper towels, and then you are uh, cleaning up stuff. So imagine that you go and you clean up this one mess and you take that same paper towel and you try to clean up another mess. What happens? It doesn't work. Why? Why not? Because it's saturated. It won't work. It's lost its absorbency. That's why it's essential that Christ was sinless. To absorb the wrath of God and absorb your sin, he has to be without sin himself. We read that in chapter two, verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice which satisfies the righteous wrath of God against sin. As an Old Testament lamb must be without blemish, so Christ must be sinless. Why? Because if he has any sin of his own, he dies for that sin and thus he doesn't die for your sin or my sin. That's the importance of Christ's sacrifice. So the sinlessness of Christ isn't some abstract theological con- uh, uh, concept. It's not some important question, some trivial question that you ask about the meaning of impeccability. It is your only hope for sanctification and justification and life and joy. In other words, again, these are not inconsequential theological sort of things. One of the things that's at the very center of the core of the DNA of this particular church is the idea that theology is not irrelevant. In fact, every single struggle that you have, every fear, every sin, every lust, every bit of pride, every bit of anxiety, all of those things, every bit of it is related to some area of your life where you don't fully believe God's Word. You don't fully believe that God is good. You don't fully believe that God is for you. You don't fully believe the gospel. Theology is inherently applicable, inherently, profoundly practical for us. What does it matter if Christ was sinless? Well, if Christ wasn't sinless, then you aren't saved. I can't think of anything that's more practical than that, that you are damned, that you are condemned for eternity. Christ came in order to take away sin He'll come again in order to complete that work, and he does so because he himself is sinless. Let's keep going into verse 6. 
which says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If I were to make a list of my top three passages of scripture that are most difficult, this would actually be in that list. Why? Because it seems to say, if you're just reading it, you're just here for the first time, you've never read the Bible before, you just look at that, it seems to suggest that if you're a Christian, if you love and trust Jesus, then you will no longer sin. As a matter of fact, next week's passage is even more difficult because it doesn't merely say that if you're a Christian that you no longer sin, it will even say that you cannot sin. So good luck with that, Zach, all right? I got the easier text of the two. So what do we do with this? Well, traditionally, there have been a handful of options, ways that you can interpret this passage. The first view is to actually take it just at its face value and say, this is actually saying that if you are a Christian, if you love and trust Jesus, if you've been born again, that you're actually sinless. It's an idea called sinless perfectionism, all right? The idea that believers no longer sin. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, his theology hints in that direction. When I was in college, I wasn't a believer, uh, but there was a uh, guy who was doing some open-air preaching, and I was walking to class, and so I stopped and listened to him, and within five minutes, I heard him make the claim that he hadn't sinned in years. Again, I wasn't a Christian in college, but I thought, that sounds really weird. I think some of the ways that you're uh, yelling at people sounds pretty sinful, all right? And so there is this idea that that is what this means. But how do we know that John doesn't actually mean that believers become sinless? That that's not actually what John is saying here because the first rule of hermeneutics, which is the way that you interpret Scripture, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. You allow clearer passages of Scripture to interpret less clear passages of Scripture. We've already read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 2, 1 which says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If he means by this passage that we don't sin, and indeed we can't sin, then 1 John chapter 1 and into chapter 2 doesn't make any sense. But John has already made it abundantly clear that we can and do sin, even as believers. So unless we want to say that John absentmindedly or ignorantly contradicts himself, that can't be what he means. Besides, there's dozens and dozens of other passages in the Scripture that would also contradict that claim. We are, as the Reformers would say, we are simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously justified, but also sinners, all right? So that absolutely is not what this means, even though it might seem on the surface to be calling for Christian perfectionism, that's not what it means. So a second view, another way that people take this is to say that this refers to certain types of sin, certain types of sin believers can't commit, whereas other types of sin they can commit. So Roman Catholicism distinguishes between mortal and venial sins and says that believers can commit venial sins, little sins, but not the mortal sins, the really big sins. Or others might say that this refers to intentional sin versus unintentional sin. So believers unintentionally, uh, unintentionally sin, but they don't intentionally uh, sin. The problem with that is twofold. 
First, the text doesn't specify some types of sin. Notice, it just says sin. It doesn't specify only certain types of sin. It just speaks of sin in general. In fact, we've already seen that sin in general is already related to anemia. It's lawlessness. All sin, in a sense, is an evidence of this lawlessness. There is no distinction that we see in Scripture between mortal and venial sins. There are greater and lesser sins. We have a blog on that on our website if you want to read about it. But even the most menial, uh, trivial sin is, again, worthy of eternal condemnation. So that's not what this is saying. Second, a reason to reject this idea is because even believers can commit egregious sin. King David commits adultery. He commits murder. The, uh, the apostle Peter, he denies Jesus, and eventually he goes and gets to a point where he uh, ceases to eat with Gentiles because of his uh, uh, sinful uh, theological convictions regarding justification, all right? And so I don't think this is just referring to certain types of sin, mortal versus venial, intentional versus in, unintentional, or whatever it might be. So a third view that I think is much more helpful, but I still think it's not quite correct is the view that says that a Christian may sin occasionally, but can't sin habitually, all right? You might have heard that view. That's a very popular, common view. Most of the sermons that I listened to whenever I was trying to figure this out, reading commentaries and listening to other sermons, most of the other sermons actually went in this direction, and yet I don't, I'm not actually convinced that that's correct, but their, uh, their view is that the Greek here is in the present tense, which is correct, But they say that that sometimes communicates some sort of ongoing, continuous action, which is why you'll see the translators have used phrases like make a practice of sinning or keeps on sinning. And again, this is how I've traditionally interpreted this particular verse, but the more I've studied it, the less I'm convinced that that's actually what John is saying here. Let me give you two reasons why I don't think that that is correct. The first one is grammatically That is way too much weight to put on the present tense. Yes, sometimes it means this ongoing continuous action, but other times it doesn't mean this ongoing continuous action. And if we're going to put all of the weight on this present tense, you also have to do the same. You have to be consistent throughout 1 John. The problem with doing that is that John uses the present tense in chapters 1 and 5 to refer to the way that believers do sin. So if we're going to build our theology on a verb tense, we have to be consistent. This passage says that we can't present tense sin, but in chapter 1 and chapter 5, it says that believers do present tense sin. So that's the first reason. I don't think grammatically that the present tense can hold up to that level of weight. The second reason is I would say that believers sin more than just occasionally. We sin all the time. Every errant thought, every careless word, every sinful desire. If you really understand the nature of sin, you actually have to admit you sin all the time, constantly. We don't sin merely occasionally. We sin constantly. Yes, our disposition to sin has changed, but still it is this ever-present reality in our life. So even though I think that the occasional versus uh, habitual distinction can be helpful at times, I think it's incomplete. And ultimately, I think it's misleading. I wouldn't even get into all of this if I didn't think that it was all that misleading. But here's why I think it's misleading. Because it makes the application of this passage inherently subjective. How do you know whether or not your sin is just occasional or if it's actually habitual? Is it okay to sin daily or weekly 
or monthly or annually? At what point does sin all of a sudden become acceptable? That's not John's point. In fact, John's point is the exact opposite, opposite that no sin is acceptable. You see where this actually leads? Although it can be helpful for us, you see where the implication leads? Some might think my sin is okay because I don't sin habitually. I just sin occasionally. I don't sin consistently. I don't sin egregiously, whatever it might be, whatever adverb you want to throw onto it. On the other hand, so on one hand, you might have those who think, I'm okay. I sin every once in a while. It's not that bad. On the other hand, you have those who are genuinely contrite, genuinely repentant in some area of ongoing struggle. And they might read this, and if you say that means occasional but not habitual, and they read that onto themselves, and what do they feel? They feel condemnation. That's my, uh, that, that's my problem with this interpretation of the text. One of the weaknesses of this view is that it becomes our, if it becomes our primary paradigm for understanding sin in our life, is that it has a tendency for some to feel condemned who shouldn't feel condemned. They're contrite, they're really fighting against their sin, and for others, it would lead them to pride and to feeling safe when they shouldn't actually feel safe. So, I don't really think that's the point that John is making here. What is the point? Well, let me give you this illustration. Imagine that you're putting together a huge jigsaw puzzle, and you have a, a, a piece that just kind of won't fit. It doesn't seem to fit. So what do you do in that moment? Well, if you're lazy or you just hate puzzles or something like that, you just give up. You assume it doesn't fit. Maybe it, came, it just fell into the box from another puzzle or something like that. Um, people do that in biblical interpretation all the time. Almost every time that someone says that there is this contradiction in Scripture, chapter 1 says that we do sin, chapter 3 says we don't sin, almost every time you see someone who makes a claim that there's a contradiction in Scripture, they haven't actually put in the work necessary to make that claim. They don't learn biblical Greek and Hebrew. They don't study systematic theology. They don't study hermeneutics. They don't read the top evangelical commentaries on that particular passage. It's just laziness. That's what some people would want to do. They just discard something that they can't seem to fit. Others recognize Scripture is authoritative and inerrant, and so therefore I'm going to make it fit the same way that some people see there's that piece and it might not fit here, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to push it in there. I'm going to bend it. I'm going to somehow get that piece of the puzzle to fit in there, all right? Now, I want to commend them for saying it does fit but as a result, they end up uh, forcing something in that doesn't actually fit. And so here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest another better approach. I'm not a big puzzle guy, so if this is like cheating in the puzzle community, forgive me, right? Uh, I'm just using this as an uh, illustration. But I find it easier whenever I am doing a puzzle and I find a piece that I can't figure out how it fits, I find it's really easy just to look at the box, look at the picture, and then figure out from the picture where it actually goes. In other words, I take a step back and I look at the bigger picture and that's what I want to suggest as it comes to this particular passage. That if you only look at verse 6 and you try to answer what does verse 6 say in and of itself, I think you're going to only be left in confusion. But if you read verse 6 in the context of the entire section of verse 1 through 10 and indeed the entire context of 1 John, I think that you can actually make some progress uh, here. Earlier we mentioned we're in the middle of a section that's addressing this fundamental distinction between children of God and children of the evil one, children of the devil. 
In a sense, the entire book of 1 John is written to answer the question, how is it that we recognize the children of God? And again, we've seen three litmus tests in the book. There's a theological dimension, that is, do, uh, that the children of God love the Son of God. They love Christ. There's also this relational dimension that the children of God love the people of God. There's something about being born again where you look at someone else who shares in the same spirit and there is a mutual love that is there. You're growing in love for others. And there's also this moral dimension that the children of God love the commandments of God. So the children of God love the Son of God, the children of God love the people of God, and the children of God love the commandments of God. In other words, the children of God are distinguished from the world by the way that we live in relation to God's word, to others, and to sin. So I think here what John is doing is he's furthering that distinction. He's specifying that there is this fundamental difference in the way that believers relate to sin. That's his point here. There is a fundamental difference in the way that believers relate to sin. There are two spheres. There are two different kingdoms, two ways of living and relating to sin. And sin is incompatible with the kingdom of God because sin is ultimately rebellion against the king. If you have been born of God, you have been delivered from the penalty of sin. Your sin is forgiven. But you've also been delivered from the power of sin. You're no longer under its rule and reign. In some sense, sin is no longer inevitable for you. You still sin, but you're no longer enslaved to sin. And not only are you delivered from the penalty and the power of sin, but even the presence of sin. As we saw last week, one day it will be completely eradicated when Christ returns and we shall be pure as he is pure. But even now, God's seed abides in us as we'll see in our text next week. And so there is this uh, growing love for God, growing hatred of sin. There is this growing progressive sanctification and holiness for us. So this passage isn't actually saying that believers don't sin. It's instead saying that there is a fundamental change that takes place in regards to a relationship to sin. Why doesn't he just write that? Why does he go out of his way to seem like he's commending perfectionism? I want to think back to the opening illustration. Uh, I tell my daughter that she can come out in case of an emergency, even though I know that she will misunderstand. In fact... She is so often misunderstood and so often abused my permission that last night, whenever she asked, what if it's an emergency? Because she's asked that literally every night since then. I just told her, if there's an emergency, I'll come get you. <laughs> Which doesn't really answer the question, but it worked in the moment and uh, she stayed in bed. So, uh, but what, why is it that I'm doing that? Uh, the reason is because I'm trying to avoid these two dangers. I think that's what John is doing. I think he's doing something similar. There are two potential misapplications to this text, two misinterpretations of this text. One is that we actually think he means perfectionism. The other is that we walk away complacent and unconvicted. John has already, in a sense, closed the door on perfectionism in chapter one, so he uses the strongest possible language to make sure that our response to this text is not apathy. The proper response to this text, to verses four through six, is conviction. If you really understand what he's saying, if you understand the meaning and the grossness and severity of sin, if you really understand the glory of God, then you will be convicted by any degree of residual sin in your life. You won't say it's just occasional. It's not habitual. You will be convicted by any degree 
of sin in your life. That conviction should lead you to repentance and faith in Christ who forgives and cleanses you of your sin. There is no room for complacency with sin for a Christian. The reality of sin in our lives does not excuse sin in our lives. Does that make sense? The reality of sin in your life does not justify sin in your life. Consider a few other places that make that point. Romans 6, 11 through 14. Paul says, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Colossians 3, 5 through 10 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. In other words, sin is gross, it's egregious, it's serious, all sin, any sin is lawlessness, it's rebellion, It's cosmic treason. To downplay or minimize residual sin in your life means that you don't really understand sin, which means you don't really understand grace or the gospel or why Christ came. So be serious about sin. That's the correct response to this passage. On the other hand, there are a number of incorrect responses. I want to end with that. These incorrect misapplications. We talked about one last week. Anytime you talk about being serious about sin and fighting sin and mortifying sin, there's always this tendency for us to hear this call to be serious about sin and think, I'll just do better. I'll just try harder. I'll roll up my sleeves. I'll pull myself up by the bootstrap. That sounds wise. It sounds like a good application. But in reality, that's just another sin. You're just adding one sin to another sin. You're fighting fire with fire because that's just the sin of self-reliance. Rather than resting in Christ, we rest in our own discipline, our own diligence, our own strength, our own sufficiency. Back to the paper towel analogy. When your toddler spills a can of chili on your couch, do you ask that two-year-old, hey, go clean it up? No, you don't, unless you don't care about that couch. What do you want them to do in that moment? You want them to simply apologetically come to you and say, I've made a mess, can you help me? That's what God is wanting from us. He doesn't want us to clean it up. We can't clean it up. All we do is smear it. We make it even worse. He just simply wants us to repentantly, contritely, humbly confess our sins and run to him, not clean ourselves up. This passage is not about how you become a child of God by doing better and trying harder and being better. It's about the effects of becoming a child of God. So that's the first improper response is to try to do this in your own strength. We talked about that last week. The other improper response is to take this text and to read verse six 
and to take it as if it says any sin in your life is incompatible and therefore if there's any sin in your life, you are condemned. You must not love Jesus. That is a misinterpretation, a misapplication of this text. So the improper response is condemnation. If you leave here and you don't feel convicted, then something is wrong. But likewise, if you leave here and you do feel condemned, then something is wrong and you haven't understood this passage. This passage should convict you, but it shouldn't condemn you. There is a huge distinction in Scripture between those terms, between conviction and condemnation. What's the difference? Well, conviction drives you to faith. Conviction drives you to hope. Conviction drives you to repentance. In other words, it drives you toward Jesus. It drives you toward Jesus and toward community and toward confession and so forth. Whereas condemnation drives you to despair. It drives you to hopelessness. It drives you to self-pity. It drives you away from Jesus, away from others, away from confession, and into yourself, just furthering your sin. So what do we do with this passage in light of the proper response and the improper responses? I want to end with three implications or applications In light of this passage, those who have been born of God, those who love and trust Jesus, should do each of the following, three different things. First, that you should confess that sin in its very nature, any sin, is gross and egregious and incompatible with our identity as children of God. Though there is a distinction in Scripture between greater and lesser sins, again, there's a blog on that on our website, That doesn't apply in regards to whether or not sin is actually horrid. All sin is horrid. All sin is treasonous. All sin is rebellious. All sin is gross. So that's the first thing. Confess that sin is egregious and incompatible with our identity as children of God. The second thing is that you would confess that Christ is sinless. And he desires not only to forgive you, but also to cleanse you of your sin. Whatever that residual sin is, whatever that lingering sin is, God desires to cleanse you of it, to remove it, to make it easier for you. He's already purchased for you freedom in that area. You're no longer enslaved. You no longer have to answer the phone whenever sin calls you. So recognize that Christ is sinless and he desires not only to forgive us but to cleanse us of our sin. And third, to embrace the call to be cleansed, not by rolling up your sleeves, not by just uh, commissioning yourself to be better and to do better and to try harder, but rather by being so captivated by the glory and the beauty of Christ, the depths of his love and his grace and his mercy, that you're compelled towards sanctification and obedience. That's what this text is calling us to do. So let's pray as the men come forward to, uh, to service communion and we'll talk more <clears throat> about those implications. Father, I thank you for your word this morning and just confess that it's difficult. On the surface, it uh, it could lead to thoughts of feeling condemned because we recognize that all of us still sin. Those who love and trust Jesus. And yet, the more that we stress that there is no condemnation, the more there is a temptation in the human heart with residing residual sin for us to grow complacent or apathetic about it. And so I pray that you would just help us as a congregation, that you would help us to avoid 
both of those misinterpretations, both of those misapplications, that we would be a people who are serious about sin, but also a people who are serious about the reality of your love and grace that you've poured out to us in your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.